What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Kenneth Namgung. Ken is the founder and designer at Monument Office, a research and design firm based in Brooklyn, New York. With his firm, With his work, he focuses on the interplay between architecture, public space, and memory. He recently started as a senior project designer at NBBJ Design. Previously, he worked at Studio Link Arc, Enid Architects, and Santiago Calatrava. He began his career at Raphael Vignoli Architects, where we crossed over for a few short weeks when I was a winter break intern there. He is a graduate of the School of Architecture at MIT and of the University of Virginia. Today, we'll be talking about suburbanism, an installation he designed for Harold Square in Manhattan. More broadly, we will talk about the history of the American suburb and what it might look like as we continue in this COVID slash post-COVID world that we're in. Thank you so much for being here with us, Ken. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's really an honor to participate. So uh, again, thank you. Absolutely. So let's start off from, from right from the beginning. So you began your architecture education in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon and then moved to Charlottesville at UVA. Tell us about the experience of living in these two great American cities and studying in these two different schools. Oh, wow. It's really interesting. So I grew up in um, Southeast Virginia um, in a town called Yorktown. And really what ends up happening is that as you move to these cities for education, especially um, when you're studying architecture, um, the cities um, that, that you occupy as part of this education really becomes part of the educational experience itself. So going from the suburbs to a city like Pittsburgh, which, you know, it was a beautiful, vibrant metropolis. It was just, you know, you're thinking about architecture, you think about how buildings are made, you're thinking about mm-hmm. city, how cities are made. And you're in, you know, one of really one of the great American cities that has this storied past, you know, this industrial center that's moving into a technology center. Mm-hmm. And you're literally seeing um, a city transform uh, before your eyes. I haven't been back in many years. I am honestly really, really overdue for um, a trip, but I would love to see how it's transformed since in the last 20 years. 
And another thing that was really wonderful about um, Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon itself was that, you know, because Carnegie Mellon being what it is, it's, it's, you know, it's a world-renowned school of architecture. It's a world-renowned school of drama, design, arts, on top of all the art architecture as well. Mm -hmm. So when you're just, uh, you know, an immigrant kid coming from the suburbs, it's an absolutely eye-opening um, experience. Now, my time at the University of Virginia was also absolutely fantastic as well. It was um you know, at the time, um, and it remains, obviously, a, a very um, a world-renowned school of architecture, obviously founded by Thomas Jefferson. And what was really interesting is that, you know, the history of Charlottesville is in many ways, it's sort of um, a lot of the history of Charlottesville is a lot of things that happened there are really kind of foundational to um, America. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the university was built effectively as sort of this sort of enlightened kind of enclave where the idea was the, this, you know, gentleman kind of farmer academic, you know, and the idea was to be able to sort of, you know, learn and think and grow in a space removed from sort of the hustle and, and bustle of, of the city. Thomas Jefferson, you know, he, he himself was educated at uh, the College of William and Mary in, in Williamsburg, Virginia, which at the time was a, a major port city. So what's happening is that the students are intermixing with the sailors and like, all, all of these sort of unsavory activity that goes on these, in these port towns. So literally, you know, the notion of the college campus is is uh, coming from from that experience. And in many ways, what was really wonderful about Charlottesville was that it was a really wonderful and kind of congenial environment in which to really think about architecture, to hone your craft, and to sort of understand, you know, um, history, landscape, and all of these things um, as sort of integral to to design architecture and urbanism. I think that, uh, so for our listeners, they're probably familiar with the, the fact that last year I uh, decided to work from home in places all across the country. So I had an opportunity to live in several dozen cities uh, over the course of the 12 months. And two of those were Pittsburgh and Charlottesville. And I think what I would say I'd remark about those two is that both are epically, epically beautiful cities. I think in terms of Pittsburgh, the, the fact that you have a city uh, built in and around the interplay of multiple rivers together and that physical environment that uh, it's set in. And I think with Charlottesville, it's particularly how distinctly beautiful not only the university, but the uh, surrounding area is. I think once you're able to go beyond like the tourist aspects of both cities and actually spend time there, I think it becomes clearer as to what the foundations of those two cities are. And I think with the case of Pittsburgh, it's the obliteration of the Native American people that lived in and around there for a wholesale growth for European settlers and industrialization. And I think uh, particularly, I think what stands out with Charlottesville is I can't pull apart the fact how epically beautiful of a place that is and the fact that it was built on the backs of slave labor and for many of the, the gentlemen uh, that you were talking referring to as the the early students at UVA they kept slaves while they were university students and the long sordid brutal history of slavery on that campus is something that I mean I, I just don't know how to pull those two apart but particularly I think it's very apt in what you described those are two very iconic American cities. And I think that experience is the one of almost every place in America to one to one aspect or another. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
So uh, before I go on, <laughs> another kind of like a soapbox about that. So uh, the term uh, Starkitect is used to describe a particular breed of designer. So that's iconic, famous, flashy, arrogant. And over the course of your career, you've had the opportunity to work for several architects that would qualify for this descriptor. How was it working with uh, people of, of that category? Well, it was, to be perfectly honest, you know, these were um, absolutely um, incredible experiences. You know, when you do work for these, you know, um, famous architects, you know, you, you're able to sort of learn how they think, how they approach architecture, mm-hmm. how they approach design, how they approach life. And, you, and it's really wonderful sort of involved in these very sort of high thinkers, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're demanding a lot of you, of course, but they're also demanding a, a lot of themselves. And, and that really there's this larger effort to really, you know, be involved in a really spectacular um, projects and the, these iconic buildings that people, people remember uh, for mm-hmm. years. And in that, in that respect, I would say it was um, an absolutely um, incredible experience because you learn how much you personally are capable of accomplishing. You know, it allows you to be, you know, much bigger than um, than you ever imagined that that you could be. So, so it's it's experience that I genuinely um, appreciate and, and will take with me throughout my career. That's terrific. Did you uh, find any particular challenges in working with with this architects uh, of these category? Wow, I'm going to have to be. <laughs> careful. This feels almost like an ambush. <laughs> No, no. It's just one of those things where, you know, in many cases, what's happening um, mm-hmm. is, you know, normal architecture activities. Um, but in some ways, you know, it's a much more iterative design process. You're mm-hmm. going back uh, things over things over and over and over again. Sometimes you're asking, you're, you're pushing, you know, the limits of, you know, you're, you're making things which are not always, you know, the easiest uh, things to build. You know, mm-hmm. there's, so there's a certain amount of interaction with the consultants and, uh, contractors, that that sort of thing, which, you know, sometimes those things can be a little bit difficult. But at the end of the day, what you're looking to do is you're looking to make um, to, to make a great piece of architecture. You're looking to make a great civic contribution. And ultimately, um, you do what you need to do to get the job done. Yeah, I think uh, I can I can totally understand that perspective. I think in particular, as there has been a greater recognition in our industry that a piece of great architecture isn't done by one sole, typically man at the head of the office, that it's actually an entire team. I think that has been a real change that has perhaps diluted the impact of uh, Starkitects or the control of Starkitects in terms of winning of commissions. And we had a great conversation with Bishan Chakrabarti earlier this season. Uh, so he's doing the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, renovation of I.M. Pei's original work in Cleveland. And he actually said he was incredibly surprised that they ended up winning because of the star-studded cast of, of people that were, were invited and were finalists in the in the competition itself. And I asked him, like, what, what did he think his secret sauce was to win? And he said, we approach every project the same, which is with care, with empathy, and with the attention that it deserves. Uh, and I think that that level is probably maybe the, the new counterpoint or the new answer to this idea of of wanting to have an architect simply because of their renown. Um, but I guess that that's for developers and clients and other clients to decide. So when they make their commissions. And so you, you launched Monument Office while a designer at Enyad Architects. 
and then continued when you moved to your uh, past firm, which was a studio link arc. That's correct. What, what were the priorities you were balancing when deciding to take an entrepreneurial path and a traditional one at the same time, which I think is actually relatively unique? I, I guess um, the, the, the first thing I should actually mention is that Monument Office isn't a real office. It's more just, it's a sort of a, a venue, a platform for my mm-hmm. own kind of personal explorations, you know, and it sort of allows you to um, explore a design voice outside of professional practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, I started with notions of looking at culture, looking at um, different ways of approaching civic space. And given my own history, you know, I've, I've actually worked at um, at the civic scale for for many, many years. So that was sort of um, really, really the first impetus to start to look at different ways to approach architecture and, and public space. And it's, it's, I'm starting to move a little bit towards this notion of dealing with issues of culture, dealing with, uh, dealing with issues of history, dealing with issues of, of uh, memory, um, so on and so forth. And the idea was that, you know, when you're within the boundaries of professional practice, you're interacting with consultants, budgets, clients, all, all of those sorts of things. And sometimes it's good to just, you know, to be able to think about, you know, what got you into architecture school in the first place and just have that sort of freedom, that ability to sort of, to uh, really explore um, your own approaches um, to mm-hmm. design. And I think doing the two seems like in the way that you described, tons of sense. And uh, this idea, this notion of a zero or one decision may even not be the right way of framing that that kind of conversation. So definitely dig that. Uh, so congratulations, you taking on a new position at NBBJ. Tell us about that, about the role and the types of projects you'll be working on. I'm relatively new uh, to the office. It's been about uh, three months. I'm mm-hmm. working as a, a senior project architect with a company in the healthcare space. And I'm currently um, involved in um, a, a very large uh, med- a medical project in, in the Northeast. It's uh, really been absolutely wonderful. It's a very uh, down-to-earth, it's a very uh, collaborative company. The attitude that they take is that that the best idea can come from anywhere. So it's it's a very sort of lively, very collaborative um, discussion, which is absolutely wonderful. Excellent. So I'd love to uh, pivot and start talking about the project uh, that we will be focusing on in this conversation, which is suburbanism. So you designed the suburbanism installation for Herald Square. Tell us about this part of Manhattan and why you chose it for this project. Well, the Herald Square area, it's, um, it's at the intersection of 32nd Street and 6th Avenue and Broadway. And, it's, and the project site is literally um, a, a triangle between Broadway, between 6th Avenue and 32nd Street. It's adjacent to uh, Manhattan's Koreatown, which, um, mm-hmm. which obviously being you know, of, of Korean um, descent is a, a place a street with which I am intimately familiar. Um, I realized recently that there's one restaurant that I've been going to there for the last 18 years. Which um, one? Um, it's called Kunjip. Okay. Oh, yeah. I've definitely been there too. Exactly. Actually, well, I'm guessing we may have been there together at some point. I think so. That's actually probably. <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those things where, you know, I, I had a day job for a while that, well, I, I actually worked near the area for, for about eight years. So, mm-hmm. you know, Partially, I chose this site out of convenience because it was a uh, it was a public space with which I was um, very very intimately familiar. So, you know, the site analysis part of of the project was you know it was maybe five minutes. 
So in some ways, it's it's a decision that's um, coming out of kind of convenience. But also, you know, Herald Square is one of those areas of Manhattan, which I also like it because it's a really, really diverse, really, really sort of um, people of all people of all um, income levels, ethnicities are coming to the space. So in, in really, mm-hmm. in it's it's very much sort of a microcosm of New York City. You know, you have your fancy your fancy neighborhoods, Soho, Tribeca, you know, um, parts of South Brooklyn, and in in some ways those are sort of their, you know, those neighborhoods are not really representative of New York as a whole. And one of the things I like about the Herald Square area is that it, you know, literally everything comes together. I think absolutely, and in particular is the the the, the square is named for the fact that it was the former headquarters of the New York Herald, uh, which was one of the major American newspapers of its time. And over its iterations has, uh, over history, has been the location of great shopping districts, entertainment districts, and now major transportation hub um, because the PATH uh, station and the Penn station are nearby. And I think that idea of coming and going and change is so quintessentially New York. And I think in a funny way provides an ironic uh, setting for this idea of a project of suburbanism, which is one that on its surface actually is one that is meant to uh, perhaps implicitly or explicitly evoke stasis or the idea of staying the same. Um, So I'd love for you to talk about once you've honed in on this area, what your uh, research and design process was like uh, for this project, uh, besides, of course, ordering mandu and japchae and, and bulgogi. <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I will say um, the, the, the mandu and the japchae uh, definitely did uh, uh, become a part of this um, discussion. <laughs> <laughs> for any <laughs> listeners that may not be familiar, those are incredibly tasty and wonderful uh, Korean dishes. You can have them at the restaurant that uh, Ken recommended or Kunjip or any other wonderful ones in Koreatown. Exactly. It's actually been really interesting to see, you know, when you've been in the city for two decades, you know, it's been really interesting to see Koreatown evolve. It's gone from mm-hmm. the somewhat the somewhat sort of enclosed enclave to being almost sort of an integral part of the, the New York experience. You know, it's really, uh, to me, so gratifying to see, you know, to, to walk by on a Friday night and the street and the street is just full of, you know, non-Koreans, you know, like yeah. in terms of advertising the cuisine, the culture, 32nd Street is doing something right. So to dive into the project, it's interesting. I started this out as an entry in, into a design competition called Tactical Urbanism through an organization called uh, Terra Viva. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I started to use this. I thought about this less as tactical urbanism and more I use this as sort of um, a vehicle by which to sort of explore different ways to look at culture, memory, and public mm-hmm. space. In fact, actually, this is remarkably not tactical. I mean, I'm basically taking out a square and putting this giant thing on top of it. So basically me winning the competition was never, it was never really um, about that. So one of the things that that's really fascinating about New York is that a lot of the energy in the city comes from people who live in, who grow up in the suburbs, go to college in the suburbs, sure. and then come to New York to kind of make their lives, make their careers. And some of them stay for a long time. Some of them stay for a short time, but ultimately it's this sort of transition that gives the city um, a lot of um, energy, a lot of cultural energy, a lot of, it just gives it sort of a different vibe. It really is one of the major sort of destination cities for life and for your career in North America. So what I did for this project was I started with that 
kind of a global you know, movement as sort of um, a jumping off point from the design. I went online. I just Googled suburban house plans. I found, mm-hmm. I pulled up the first one that I could find. I built that is, um, as a, I made a digital model of that, you know, uh, you know, put the floor plans to CAD and what have you. And then I, I scaled that up across the site. It, um, I scaled that up about one and a half times. I multiplied that across the site and then I subtracted that from the larger form, uh, from, from the larger form coming from, you know, the triangle that is um, Herald Square. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to, well, this form is actually, this form is articulated in a kind of a light wire mesh material. And, you know, it's not actually, it, it's really drawing a lot of inspiration from, from an artist named Eduardo Trisoldi, who, what he does is he takes, he'll go to historic sites and he'll, using um, this wire mesh, he'll sort of recreate, you know, the building or the house that used to be there. So you sort of see this as kind of a ghost, as kind of a memory. And I thought that was just really such a, a beautiful idea. So what I did was I took that idea and I, and instead of, you know, recreating like a, like a palazzo or historic, you know, temple or something, I effectively kind of, you know, took this negative space of the suburban house and articulated that in this wire mesh. So effectively this, it becomes a ghost, it becomes a memory of the American suburb that expresses itself in the least suburban of environments. And the idea is to sort of um, echo, obviously, the movement that brings everyone to New York. You know, it's it's something that I did in, uh, in 2003. It's something that you did a few years later, I think. Mm-hmm. So the idea is in some ways is to sort of, you know, for people to, to be able to walk through it and to uh, remember where we all come from, you know, in, in that sense. And this idea of articulating it using this wire mesh really does talk about kind of, you know, history, um, memory, and that sort of thing. But to tie it further into New York City, what I decided was that, and in large part, this is purely purely pragmatic because this is quite large, but the proposal is to support this wire mesh with a scaffolding, which, as you well know, Atif, is pretty much endemic to the city. You know, the mm-hmm. um, scaffolding is everywhere. And to me, it talks about the fact that it's a city that's constantly changing, constantly being rebuilt, being reworked. You know, it, you know it, it's not a static city. Like, everywhere you go, facades are being done. You know, it's just a facade are being rebuilt, you know. People are cleaning up the facades and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, I would say I would offer that uh, the same way. Say like mud brick is a traditional building material in Mali and dolomite limestone in Turkey. That uh, perhaps uh, sidewalk sheds or scaffoldings are, that's the native building material of New York City because you see that everywhere. That's a trickle part of everything that we do here. That's exactly right, and it's amazing where you know I've been in the city long enough now that there are some buildings that. You know, I've never seen them not under scaffolding, right? So, so mm-hmm. in many in many cases, you're right. It is actually very much a native building material. One of the things that that really kind of led me into this notion of dealing with the suburban experience, honestly, was, you know, for me, it's less not it's it's partially about you know the, growing up in the suburbs and moving to New York City. That's one thing, but also as a first generation immigrant, you know, I'm not coming from a culture that really comes from a suburban sort of history, right? So in other mm-hmm. words, you know, when I'm growing up in the suburbs, you know, I, you know, we, as a, as a, as a Korean immigrant family, we are occupying suburban space differently. We are occupying suburban, you know, the suburban house differently. It's a slightly different attitude towards the domestic environment, towards the front yard, towards the backyard. So 
there's actually, you know, there's this, this kind of additional cultural layer that for me is sort of applied to this as well. And what's also interesting is that we, we do start to sort of move a, a little bit away from sort of architecture, but for, for reasons that I'm not going to get into here, my own connection to Korea, you know, my nominal homeland is actually pretty weak. I've only been back, um, uh, you know, t- uh, two or three times. And for various reasons, um, I, I'm not, I'm not really going to get into here, you know, going back is, will not be an option for some time. Right. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is that you're in this kind of suburban space, right. But you're occupying it from through the lens of a completely different culture. Yeah. And you're also occupying through the lens of a culture that you don't fully know yourself. So there's a sort of, I wouldn't call it discomfort, but it's this kind of feeling of like not entirely being there or sort of feeling, you know, being feeling like you're really 100% a part of this. So, you know, for me, this exploration is, you know, there's a lot of psychology and a lot of memory here as well. There's so many interesting parts uh, to this in particular, what you're describing feels like it could be the experience of the the children in Minari, the Oscar-nominated, I believe, Oscar-winning movie that was uh, last year focused on the experience of Korean immigrants to uh, Arkansas, which is, I think, the extreme even beyond suburban America. And this idea of trying to put oneself into another culture and time and space and physical environment and the awkwardness and the beauty that, that does come from that. So I think I definitely appreciate that. And I would imagine for Indian, Pakistani, and other Asian uh, immigrants, this idea that the, the often the unit of measure that we use uh, foundationally in our culture is the community. It's not the nuclear family. It's not the individual. So the notion that you have a house that is built for a nuclear family on a separate lot that is not attached to another uh, and that each person typically will have their own bedroom uh, is of a different scale and a different notion that I think uh, that people from these backgrounds are familiar with. And I think it's not as if there is a solution to be made or an answer to be found. It's more just the the strangeness of being that that ends up uh, creating. So I, I feel like there there's definitely something uh, really evocative in what you're saying. And, and what particularly struck me was when you talked about this idea of memory and the idea of creating not the space itself, but the uh, defining the area around it in order to emphasize what was not there uh, anymore. And in particular, I think that that is a tool that is uh, one that could be, say, similar to photography of photographing uh, historic monuments. Uh, For example, um, I saw a recent uh, installation of uh, photographs of historic monuments that were destroyed uh, during the invasion of Syria uh, over the past couple of years. So Greco-Roman and Ottoman and beyond uh, historic monuments. And I think in particular, the what I saw over the past two years is the use of uh, Web3 uh, type tools to recreate uh, in virtual worlds, uh, what someone isn't able to access or experience anymore. Uh, so, for example, students at MIT recreated the entire campus, uh, if you know, in, in Roblox. Uh, so essentially, or Minesweeper, one of the two. And I think this idea of, of recreation or uh, of memory being written in many different ways feels like something that is particularly evocative in a time where people may not be uh, in their typical situation, uh, whether physically or mentally or in any other way. Um, So let me ask this. So you talked about some of the materials that you used. Uh, Help me understand the scale of what you're talking about. How big is this installation? 
It's about three stories tall. Um, and the idea behind that was to sort of make it big enough that it could really be understood as um, an urban space, uh, as mm-hmm. a space for you know various types of civic activities. And what I really liked about it was I also, you know, this notion of scaling up the house, the suburban house, you know, by about one and a half times. The entire idea behind that was to sort of the scaling it makes it a much makes it feel much more conscious. It makes it feel it takes it a little bit out of the realm of sort of something that's real. It makes it sort of I don't want to say unreal, but it makes it something that you have to sort of experience and sort of understand it and kind of think about. Mm-hmm. The best way I can think of to explain it was that, you know, we all have have this memory of as children of, you know, things being much bigger than us, right? That's actually the case, I think, with being an architect as well. But every time that I imagine a place or I see photographs of it before I actually go to the place itself, I'm always shocked at how small it is when I actually get there at a right. project site. Right. That, that's, that's exactly right. I remember when I was um, a child, you know, um, my parents were PhD students actually at the College of William & Mary, mm-hmm. uh, to bring it back to the Thomas Jefferson discussion. So I spent a fair amount of time um, in the physics building. And, you know, I remember sort of seeing this equipment, you know, all these things, which were, you know, when you're five, um, you know, these things are huge and you don't know mm-hmm. what they are. And I remember going back at one point in high school, seeing seeing the same equipment and all of a sudden it's tiny, it's regular, it's, it's kind of human sized. And part of me kind of actually prefers like the childhood memory of just sort of being, you know, kind of overpowered um, by the space. So in some ways, like the scale of this, um, the scale approaches is is, um, is is very, very, very um, deliberate. The idea is to mm-hmm. really take it into something that's, um, there's a term I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, not quite sublime, sublime, but you have to bring it to, in, in order to make it present, you have to kind of bring it to a state of unreality to make the concept really, really visible. And I think to be, to take a dark turn towards that, I think this idea of favoring or perhaps looking back at a childhood memory of home versus a present reality is a really evocative metaphor for millennials. So we are the poorest generation in American history. We are the first ones where our parents' generation actually have a greater level of living than our generation does. Uh, And particularly, we have the lowest rate of homeownership that has been the case at our maturation process of our generation in modern American history. And there's this reality that there are millennials and plenty of them that can't afford the home that they grew up in uh, if they were to try to attempt to purchase it now, namely because over the past several years, uh, the incredible influx of iBuyers in markets like, say, for example, Phoenix, where this past year, 25% of the home sales went to essentially six different companies that bought them through uh, algorithms. And I think this notion of, of memory, particularly for millennials, I think is going to become stronger and stronger as more and more so that that transition happens to homeownership. And perhaps what we're able to buy is a lot more modest than what it was that we grew up in. Right, right. The funny thing about this is that, you know, when you think about, you know, this notion of the suburban home and this history, this memory, in some ways, like, you're right, this could also be understood as, you know, effectively the ghosting of it, the ghostly nature of this almost talks about something un- unattainable, not, not, not necessarily just history, but, mm-hmm. you know, something that is never going to be a reality. And one thing that, you know, 
that that dawned on me as as we were having this conversation was that you know a lot of the you know I grew up I grew up in like kind of one of the older suburbs. The house I grew up in was built in nineteen seventy eight, something like mm-hmm. that, right? And when you think about it, a lot of the um, political decisions, a lot of the kind of governmental decisions that kind of lead us to our current state of in, you know income inequality, um, this you know this huge amount of money coming into uh, residential um, coming into uh, residential construction, mm-hmm. residential architecture, a lot of those decisions that 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 led to our current condition are actually happening in the late seventies, early eighties, you know um, that that sort of thing, right? So. I, you know, and this is really doesn't relate to anything, but, you know, this adds just a kind of another dimension to that discussion, right? I'm basing this on a suburban floor plan that yes. easily could have been built in 1980. So, I think so, uh, that this idea that the idea of home is one that is uh, tied with both reality and imagination, fact and fiction, and uh, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and that essentially is the, the story of suburban America. And help us understand, so we now we understand the uh, location, we understand the material, we understand your design process and the scale. Walk our listeners through what they would see and feel as they were walking along, for example, 32nd Street uh, into Herald Square, and what, what they would see in and around them at the suburbanism installation. Right. Well, the larger idea, obviously, is to sort of, you know, is to be occupying this urban space mm-hmm. that was, you know, and the idea was to create a new kind of urban space that's created by the negative, the negative form generated, um, you know, by this, by this house form, right? So the idea is really to, as lightly as possible, to create something that is spatial without being excessively physical or architectural. So when you're, when you're inside this space, you have this very, very light roof over you that gets back to this notion of history, that gets back to this mm-hmm. notion of memory. And to further this connection to the American suburbs, what I did was I, I'm proposing occupying the space beneath it and adjacent with this sort of type of um, wire mesh furniture that effectively is sort of uh, actually derived from various suburban um, archetypes. You know, you've got, let me pull it up here, you know, I just randomly took a couple of um, suburban suburban ideas and sort of combined them and recombined them in different ways. So there's, you know, there's a wire mesh version of like the um, the Easy Boy lounge chair. Mm-hmm. There's a um, I've done some something similar to like the large sort of sectional sofa. Um, I've got you know your kind of backyard you know, recliner you know that's been kind of rendered in this sort of ghostly wire mesh material as well. So the idea is you know to really, I mean, in terms of the occupation of this urban space, you're you know, you've got the ghost of the suburban house above you, and then you've got this sort of suburban furniture, which allows you to sort of occupy the space of the city in a different way, in a way which sort of helps people remember, you know, the suburban life before New York City. Mm-hmm. And the idea also is very much to sort of, you know, create a lively and active um, public space. And, you know, the one of the great things about the city is that the second you put out a place for people to sit, People, people sit. sit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're yeah. like pigeons, basically. Humans are like pigeons. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I do like about that that's been happening in the Herald Square area recently is that the city has made efforts to bring more uh, street furniture. Um, there's 
there's the green tables and chairs, you know, those little light metal things. They've put out ping pong tables. And now there's, um, you know, they have uh, live music uh, playing there on, on a fairly mm-hmm. regular basis. Some of it is, comes from the city. Some of it, some of it is just random people, you know, uh, who are uh, playing for money. But it also, but it makes for a, what I would consider a very, very a lively space. So I am going to take a break here to let listeners know that we'll be having developer Ron Shinnick of New Blueprint Partners on the American Building podcast next month. I am fascinated by Ron because he decided to start his own firm after turning 50. We will find out more about how he made the entrepreneurial leap in that conversation. Go to AmericanBuildingPodcast.com right now to to subscribe to the pod so you don't miss a single episode. Redist is a technology-enabled company transforming how small to mid-sized real estate developers finance their projects. We are focusing on public financing tools like tax credits and tax abatements and making them more accessible to our customers in New York and New Jersey. We have plans to expand to four other states in the near future. Redist is a venture capital-backed business, and we are eagerly hiring innovative thinkers for roles in product, engineering, and content. Find out how to join our growing team by visiting redist.us. And finally, Kramer Levin is a full-service law firm based in New York with over 300 professionals on staff. They were founded in 1968, so it is an understatement to say that they have been around the block a few times. Their real estate and land use practices are top-notch, which I can say since I was actually one of their clients when I worked at Xtel Development. Find out more about how they help developers of all sizes at KramerLevin.com. So the term suburb literally means below urban, referring to the lower density of these places, typically located in rings around your city. In your opinion, what is the suburb and how has it changed over time? And feel free to use any measure of time to go all the way back to the Eastern Han Dynasty, which I think was the first suburbs recorded in human history to anything more more close. So how have suburbs evolved? It's quite interesting. Um, the one thing that I have noticed is that, you know, when I was growing up, I think you could sort of see that, well, the, the suburb I grew up in, um, Yorktown, Virginia, was, you know, a fairly sleepy um, a little place, very much sort of, there was a bit of a, a connection to, you know, the older Southeast Virginia, the, the older Tidewater um, area that that has been there for, you know, 200 years and, you know, when I was growing up, there was still a very, very strong um, connection to um, the local culture, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I don't know that that was the case for every suburb, but, you know, a lot of the first wing suburbs outside, you know, cities like Pittsburgh, outside cities like Boston, you know, there is something of a connection to the local history of the place. Mm-hmm. And my own family, our center of gravity has moved from um, Southeast Virginia to around the Washington, Washington D.C. area. And to me, it's a much more, it, it's much newer, at least, at least, you know, um, where, where my parents lived. And in some ways, it's a much more sort of anonymous suburb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the buildings are fancier, but they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're much more generic. It's, it's a much more, you know, they're, 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 in some ways, like there's much more, more emphasis on curb appeal. You know, so, so in other words, it's, it's in some ways, the, the new American suburb, or what I see now is it's much more about looking like something as opposed to actually being something, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Another thing that I found, though, is that at least, you know, 
in, in the suburb, you know, where, where my parents live now, the shopping centers have become, they're starting to be based around, based in some ways, like they're starting to mimic more kind of what we would consider in urban conditions. So you've got, you know, your little sort of public street, you know, um, where people are interacting a little bit. And then, but, but that's surrounded by, you know, like seven acres of parking, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's, um, you're starting to see, you know, kind of the reverse um, movement from what I suggested, where effectively um, the, sub- the suburban shopping experience is starting to kind of become a simulacrum of um, what we would consider a modern urban condition. So it's, so I guess the way I would see it is that this, the suburb to me seems much more, you know, I, I don't want to use the word fake, but I think it's, you know, people are really trying to sort of evoke something that, that, that really wasn't there in the past. Another thing that I do find interesting is that, you know, my father, you know, before he passed, was in a retire was in sort of a suburban kind of, not quite a retirement community, but it was um, he was in a community that was uh, geared towards kind of older um, older home buyers, right? Mm-hmm. And what the funny thing was in that particular where he lived, you know, the space he occupied was much more spatially kind of ambiguous, like. You know, much more open than um, than than any other suburban house I've ever, I've ever lived in. You know, to the point that, you know, because you know it's designed for you know your older you know your older residents who may be not walking as well. You know, they may be in wheelchairs, so there's a certain amount of openness that's sort of required. Mm-hmm. You know, which makes things well. Effectively, it's just remarkably informal, right? Yeah. So 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 I think that's been interesting. I think in particular the this idea of an architectural style and a typology that attempts to evoke something that isn't there or tends to be representative of an imagined existence. Uh, and I think that there is no thing more emblematic of what you just described than the McMansion. And I think that's a term that folks uh, from our industry and obviously from outside of it have heard. But the history of that term, I think, is one that is so fascinating as a corollary uh, to the the transformation of the American suburb over the past 30 to 40 years. And I think particularly the the key elements of a McMansion, one of them is this uh, jumbled design language that includes things like steeply sloped roofs, multiple dormers, mansard roofs, really detailed mixed material palettes, keystones and coins, and weird um, different types of cladding uh, that ends up resulting in this idea that you can't figure out if you're looking at something that, like a reduction of something Palladio designed or something that looks like a Levittown. That's essentially this this mishmash in between. Uh, And the origins of McMansions actually started in the 1980s in California. And the idea was that it was meant to be a type of a house that was somewhere in between a typical tract uh, housing, suburban housing, and somewhere between a suburban gated community or a golf course. Uh, So generally smaller lots. Uh, but wanted to explore a lot similar to the lower level homes, um, but we wanted to give the impression of grandeur of the larger level homes. And that's why this notion of this fast food reference and the supersizing of these homes is something that has become a design language uh, of their own. And now they're essentially pejorative uh, to be negatively described, to negatively describe homes. Uh, I think some other terms that are, are often used are uh, Hummer houses, 
I've heard that uh, very occasionally, a starter castle and executive homes. Uh, so I think that they all tend to be um, key parts of the design language of the American suburb. So help our listeners understand the things that resulted in the American suburb being created, because this this did not happen in a vacuum. There are certain cultural, political, and even transportation conditions that made suburbs expand rapidly in the United States. Give us an overview of what some of those issues are and were for the American suburb. From what I gather, you know, there's this um, there's this need to, you know, a lot of this is coming from post-World War II, the, the GI Bill. There's a need to house all these soldiers who are coming back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's this push to, especially after World War II, there's a bit of a push to establish something of an American identity separate from sort of, you know, the, the immigrant cultures that exist in the cities. You know? mm-hmm. So there's this, you know, effectively this desire to kind of create almost an, an American sort of town style tradition, which, um, you know, it, it evokes sort of the English country, you know, these English country homes, that sort of thing. And it, it's, it's all part of this larger sort of kind of endeavor to, to kind of create, you know, the American lifestyle. Mm-hmm. There's a certain aspect of, you know, as I've mentioned, sort of maybe not wanting to be associated with with, with these Im- immigrant cultures, which are primarily in cities. There's a certain aspect of, of of class and race where, honestly, it's my understanding that, you know, suburban houses were effectively designed to be economically out of reach for very specific uh, groups of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's I, I don't I don't know how um, how well known that is, but but that's very much uh, my understanding. And on top of that, there is this larger, you know, this is all happening in conjunction with the creation of the American interstate system, which is obviously looking to connect people in places. There's a certain thought of, I believe, trying to get people out of the major population centers because this is also the start of the Cold War. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, I don't know how, how much it's one factor versus the other. Correct. But, you know, it's, you know, all these things come together to create an urban and ar- architectural condition, which is very, very specific to America. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think that there are many different aspects, and I'll add a few more that might help color our listeners' understanding. In addition, it's the growth of the commuter railroads, uh, particularly those around Metro New York City that allowed people to effectively work in New York City and uh, live elsewhere. It's uh, You mentioned earlier the uh, tax codes as being an integral part of the existence of the suburb, and particularly the 1980 tax code, which uh, created the mortgage interest deduction, which actually made it more lucrative to be a homeowner than to than be a renter. And the various levels of federal government and uh, municipal government interactions in the 70s and 80s that led to cities being drained of funding. And particularly, I think one that is the most well-known is this concept of redlining, which was created under the FHA, under President Johnson. And the idea was that uh, high minority areas would not be able to be uh, subject to or be allowed to get uh, bank financing that is backed by uh, federally backed uh, mortgage insurance, uh, which made it uh, very difficult for people that were in certain areas to get the full value of their homes and for those people to move to other areas as well. Um, So a lot of these social, cultural, political um, issues come together in this amazingly toxic soup uh, that created the American suburb that we have today. 
So I'm really curious about what your thoughts are going forward on a few issues. So one in particular. So with COVID, New York City lost an estimated 5% of its population, which is about 440,000 people. So other dense urban areas have experienced the same thing. And by scrolling through Instagram, it seems that everyone moved to Miami for a hot minute. (laughs) New York Times in particular looked at municipal data around car registration and found that most people actually moved just a few hours from their home city. So how do you think places like Montclair, New Jersey, Huntington, New York, Greenwich, Connecticut, are going to benefit from COVID in the long term in the context of the suburban typology? Well, it's actually sort of interesting. The one thing that I think that happened during the pandemic was that, you know, people learned that um, they could work from home and be, be much more productive. So two things. Number one, yes, the city lost a lot of people. But number one, many of the people are coming back. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. But I think people are coming back into this with sort of um, an understanding of that, that they can live and work from almost anywhere now. So I do think that this ability for people to, you know, even if they're nominally based in a place like New York, but are living in the suburbs, you know, like you said, Montclair, Huntington, I think that effectively, you know, people will, a lot of people will be maybe spending more time, you know, in their hometowns or in their, in their suburban locations. And effectively what that does is that I think it takes a lot of the urban activity of New York, it takes the population, and I think it spreads that out to these different towns. So I think that this potentially could be very good for um, a lot of the t- uh, cities and a lot of the neighborhoods just outside uh, New York City. I have a colleague at a company called Daybase, actually, which um, it, it's, a, it's a co-working space that. Mm-hmm. Uh, cater specifically to that. So the idea is to create sort of a second space or third space, actually, where, you know, it's a co-working space that's effectively uh, designed for small, smaller cities, smaller towns, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit more of a suburban occupation. So I think potentially this could, you know, what's coming out of COVID is that this new redis- redistribution of, of our work activities could actually become a tool for, for revitalizing or bringing more energy to towns outside New York City. It's not... The, the new calculus is that it's not just New York or nowhere, mm-hmm. but it's New York and all of these other places, which I think is uh, quite fascinating. I agree. And I think as leasing and sales for Class A office in urban core areas continue to be challenged, it's the suburban office that is doing quite well right now, both on the leasing and the sales perspective. I think it's this notion of what you described as the third or fourth space is particularly interesting to office uh, tenants right now. Uh, And I think a couple of the things that listeners might look forward to or keep their eyes open for is I believe that these smaller cities are going to benefit exceedingly from relatively well-heeled New Yorkers now moving their tax domicile to their cities. So that I think is going to be allowing for a greater flow of funding to smaller cities. And you're probably going to see demand driven improvements in terms of retail. So if someone's expecting all the retail that they saw in uh, Hoboken to be in these cities an hour away, that I think over time, locations like the ones in Western New Jersey will start uh, being able to 
rise up and uh, and address some of those demands. I think you're going to probably see changes in housing stocks. So namely to include, um, for example, like you talked about office spaces within the home. So totally cool to wear sweatpants there. Maybe not in the day base. Maybe you have to elevate a little bit from the sweatpants there. But uh, I think also if you think about the movie Minari, the sort of uncomfortable uh, place that the grandmother had in that home, there wasn't really a place for her there. Uh, and I think that as the population of the United States uh, looks a little bit more like me and you, uh, that there are going to be alternate visions of what a suburban home actually looks like in terms of the consideration of multiple generations living under the same roof. And I think the one that will really be able to, to I think, uh, be shown is in 2022 and 2022, uh, 2024, how uh, voter dispersal is going to be affecting voting and elections in areas outside of the core cities themselves. And I guess we'll have to see what happens there. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Ken. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Ken on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Ken and I have made donations to the MIT School of Architecture and Planning to support educational initiatives and scholarships to attend this world-class institution. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.